0: Welcome. In today's episode, I will be exploring the issue of decolonizing the curriculum. And to help me do that, I will be joined by two students from the University of Exeter. In the second half, I'll speak with acclaimed professor, Jeremy Black, to hear his views on the issue. This is Tell a Friend. Almaz, Neha, welcome to Tell a Friend. So for my listeners who may not have come across you, Almaz, you were the former president of the Feminist Society at the University of Exeter, and Neha, you were the former editorial team of Expose, which is a university newspaper. So could you begin by introducing yourself and talking a bit about what you study? Almaz, shall we start with you?
1: Yeah, so I have just finished Classics and Philosophy um, at Exeter. <laughs> it's been like pros and cons being at exeter obviously i've met amazing people i've learned amazing things but at the same time i have had to face um you know racism and discrimination that i'd not faced before in my life and that also involves in the academic side of things you know like racial issues that i wasn't expecting
2: so yeah it's been it's been ups and downs but we got there in the end
0: what about you neha
2: um, so I, I'm, I'm doing an MA in English right now, and I did the undergraduate degree in English as well here. Um, regarding experience, I think it I think it's been a pretty mixed bag as well. Um, it has it is it is a nice environment all in all, but there has certainly been elements both academically and in terms of, um, you know, in terms of all-rounded student experience, where I feel that there are things not being addressed, there are racial issues that have not been addressed, that have only quite recently begun to come out into the, um, into the public spheres of discourse. And I mean this in a very localised way.
0: And now one issue that a lot of students have raised is the issue of reading lists about it not being diverse enough what's been your experience of that Neha
2: um right so I think with English we for the first year we often there's often a expectation that that's where the curriculum starts being you know that's where you that's where you start so you know that's where you need to get the most basic or classic you know examples and often what is seen as basic is and you know as as a fundamental part of university education is a very male stale pale sort of narrative um i would say that adjusting reading lists does not mean adding something that you know adding something that's optional for students to take later on like you know oh a race module or oh a oh a um feminist module it's it's more that because our reading lists offer these as other options it essentially others the options you know makes them a set apart from what is considered the normal and the normative trajectory of the student studying english
0: now one experience that i've had studying history, is I've had modules where they've tried to include black voices and minority voices, but it always feels like a last minute add-in. It feels like absolutely. last minute they just banged, you know, a W Devoir, you know, just in there. And Almaz, is that something that you've heard your peers talk about? I mean,
1: yeah, absolutely. You always have that thing um, where the first lecture of the term, they go through sort of the reading list. Then there's a slide at the end that says, if you want to read more into the subject from minority voices, then in your own time, you can read these and they chuck in, you know, a couple of women or black people or whatever. And it never forms any serious bulk of the reading list of what they actually expect you to learn. And it was only up until um, third year that I did a module in feminist philosophy where, a. Of, You can assume that majority of the writers were women, and so many of them were women of colour. And that was the first time in my final year that I'd done a module, and you know, had that been the focus.
0: Now, do you feel that Exeter University has created an environment where you can both talk freely with academics about your course, about what they're teaching, or do you feel that there's still a little bit of division between the teachers? for well, the lecturers and the students?
1: Um, I think, I mean, if, at least from, in my course, um, I've always felt relatively comfortable going to academics with, like, questions and stuff, but I've never felt comfortable to ask questions of this nature about, you know, like, decolonising the curriculum, or why do we only study, you know, pale, male, stale? Like, I, I, I've never sort of felt comfortable enough to bring that up which is I think something I regret over my university career is not you know pushing the question more um you know one can say that classics focuses on Rome, Greece so I mean how much diversity can you look for there but at least in philosophy um I do regret not
2: pushing that question more.
0: And how has it worked in English?
2: Um, so I was going to actually say it was, it's actually worked very differently in English where I think across the last two or three years I was involved with um, student representation and journalism and everything. The academics in English have been very proactive, I'd say, as in the will is there. They do really want to open up their curriculum. And it's everyone understands it's a very... Difficult process. I mean, there are really difficult things that you have to tackle when it comes to, you know, appropriately decolonizing a syllabus and the really tricky, nitty gritty questions that it opens up. But I think in English, so especially for the last two or three years, there really has been a will. And from what I hear, that will's been there for about, you know, five, six years. It's just that it just needs to be pushed further and it needs to be a very student-staff solidarity sort of thing. And I genuinely do think that English are starting to do a very good job with it. Um, In my third year, they'd run a Decolonising the Curriculum Roundtable, where external speakers, professors um, professors in other universities, and students who were alumni of Exeter had come to speak about their experience. And it was a very good step, but obviously it takes a while to translate that into pedagogical practices and updating. I mean, because updating the reading list isn't the only thing.
0: Now, if you're a marginalised or minority student, which I think all three of us fall into some bracket of that, what effect do you think it has on you if you have a curriculum that doesn't represent you or represent the groups in which you belong? Almost. that's like pretty pretty deep question um
1: if i sort of cast my mind back to first year so obviously i would moved back to england from ghana um and i was experiencing racism in other areas and then i think when you go to your you know Modules, the academic side of the university, and there as well, you are also not in any way the focus, not in any way addressed. Um, it can really affect how much you, not only value yourself, but value people like you, value your culture, value your history. Um, and it, it implies that certain people deserve to be studied, read, respected, Ask questions, and other people aren't. Which I think, for a lot of students, can be um, fairly distressing. Yeah, I think.
0: And in English, when you read books as a class on issues such as race or feminism or these topics, what has been the response from your white peers?
2: I think this is. I think this is honestly (laughs) the trickiest question in addressing the question, like in addressing the issue of decolonizing itself and that is what is the difference between say I'm, I'm going to say for instance the peace towards towards um, Asians what is the difference between a student looking at a book and saying that and looking at you and saying that exactly yeah and there's there's always been and this is obviously a lot of white people can't tell when you you can't hear the intent in the person's voice but there's a lot of glorification in saying these letters because in this environment you can and that's always been I think something really difficult that I've experienced when studying issues of race which are I think very well covered by on the academic side but there's always either an expectation that you as the student of color will have all the answers about um I don't know Gandhi or or someone Um, but but there's on the other side there's also that thrill that you can almost sense when someone's reading these slurs and they know they can say it and it's always it's all it's just always been in my mind like what is the difference between them you know reading it from a book and them looking at you and saying it when you're sat right next to them in that small academic classroom environment
0: now, from what you both say, I'm getting the impression you're both for decolonising the curriculum. Am I right?
1: I, w- I wonder what gave you that impression.
0: <laughs> then, then could, Almaz, I'll start with you, could you talk to me about what decolonising the curriculum means to you?
1: I think, um, and like picking up on what I said earlier, it's about shifting, not removing the focus from, you know, white people or men or whatever but allowing that focus to be shared with other voices because other voices have something to say and I, it's not about I don't want Plato removed from the curriculum or you know Aristotle I quite like Aristotle um it's about understanding that other people can also add to the discussion and deserve to be studied um and trying to remove always comes back to the empire but removing that legacy of that empire has over our academic institutions um yeah and spreading that focus to other people
0: and what about you neha
2: i think i'm what um discussing having discussed this for the last um two or three years with several different people um what i'm hearing a lot in terms of criticism is that decolonization is cancelling it's negative it's taking away, you know, as, as I was said, it's like, you know, removing Aristotle, or, you know, in our case, Shakespeare, while it's not removing decolonization to me means that it's, it's an addition. It's exactly, you can't avoid, you can't avoid, say, studying Churchill, um, at university, but while studying Churchill, you also should not be able to avoid, the colonial atrocities he'd taken part in and in english there's a lot of books where you know there's a there's a colonial spectra hanging over 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 a novel or something and decolonizing it does not mean that you take them away it means addressing that it exists why it exists and why say jane eyre with the sugar plantation money behind it why why is this taught in this way and, in, and not in that Um, Obviously it isn't perfect, it isn't perfect yet but I think in the humanities people have identified steps to get there and identified that it's not necessarily, you know, removing everything from the reading list and like just chucking on a bunch of brown people, that's not it.
0: Yeah. In 2016 we saw the Road Must Fall campaign which touches on the issues you both speak about, about empire and about where the money from uh, these institutions, where they acquired it. Now, what was your assessment of the debate that it evoked nationwide, Almas? I think um, I think people just really got the wrong end of the stick with
1: that, really. Um, it was a campaign that I really, admired um and I could not wrap my head around why people were so um against it really I think it is good to want to not have people who committed so many atrocities um idolized in you know universities I think that you know that whole movement really addressed issues that we have in academia, which is like Neha was talking about earlier, avoiding the dark parts and just highlighting the the great parts, although I can't think of any great parts of the empire. Um, And I think, I mean, even in Exeter, we have like a statue of, um, do do you guys know the name of the 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 general? general. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got like a bunch of like colonial, like, countries on it and like it's got like um, Ghana on it and I have to walk past that every day going to town Um, and I mean how how much can a university say it respects the students if people have to walk past every day the statue of a man who went to their country and killed their people yeah so I think it really it did bother me how badly that was received by a lot of people
0: but what would you say to those who may say this is part of the institution's history, Uh, what effect does it have being there? Because it is just a sign of what happened in a day gone by.
1: Certainly things happen, history happens, um, but it doesn't need to be idealized in that way. Um, We can study all sections of history without having them literally put on a pedestal.
0: And Neha, when we talk about the issue of reparations and universities trying to pay back some of the money that they acquired from imperial conquest, do you believe that this is something universities should be doing, or do you believe it's a futile act?
2: With reparations, there's always a question, um, who are you paying it back to? A lot of the countries that the United Kingdom had stolen and pillaged from, they don't exist, they are new countries now, they are, who are you giving, say the Kohino diamond? Are you gonna give it to India or Pakistan? Now that's a huge, huge question with you know a lot of international implications. And if you take that down to a smaller scale, who, what is a university going to do? Are they going to give money to students from India? Um, that's, that's not really gonna do much. What I think reparations should look like if they exist invest money in these practices invest money in understanding um, understanding the often bloodied history of the place understanding and basically just as as Alma said earlier adding voices and researching more into into black and Asian voices and um, other marginalized voices that weren't Um, that weren't looked at before academically. And that's where university strength is. They can put their money in areas of academia which haven't been explored before. And that's what reparations could look like. Now, as you said, I'm also very interested in the physical aspect of it, um, the space and the place. And um, I'm really interested about the statue because that's exactly how I felt as well, walking back from town. Um, And it's the fact that they're so high up so I went to Oxford. I had a look at the Rhodes statue. He's just sat, he's on top of a building. And how much is it going to cost Oxford to bring him down? I'm not saying beat him up. I am saying, you know, break the statue. But for the, yeah. the purposes of the podcast, I'm saying um, mm-hmm. how much is it going to cost the university to take a statue down from the roof, bring him down to where you can look at him? Why is he on top? And the same thing with Red Visbula. It's the same thing with Reed Hall, for instance. Why are you not acknowledging where the money's coming from? Duryard Yard Hall, that was a place for ex, um, ex-Englishmen who worked in the Caribbean. Now, you can infer what they were working for, what they were working as. Why hasn't that not been acknowledged? I mean, you've got international students staying there happily, not knowing what that ground was built on. These are the things that universities could put that, that reparations money into, um, exposing, exploring and researching further.
0: A guest that I'll be speaking to um, a bit later in the episode, Jeremy Blatt, he argues that decolonizing the curriculum is all about academics of today imposing our morals today on something that happened in the past. What's your take on that?
1: Um, I I think that, um, as both Neha and I said earlier, there's a way to study things without idolising them and without shadowing the very dark and bloody parts of them. Uh, and I don't think... I mean, yes, it's with today's moral that we can look back and say, hey, that, that was pretty bad. But I don't think that's a, a problem. I don't think it's a problem to um, use are improved morals to look at things differently um so i yeah i don't really have a problem with that line of argument really
0: what about you Neha what's your take on that
2: i don't i just cannot see how it detracts from the um from the academic experience to either look at it from today's morals um in comparison to I'm I'm assuming looking at it from, say, the 18th century's mor- mor- morals, because even in applying the 21st century lens to it, you are acknowledging the fact that they had these different morals before. Exactly. Yeah. You're not taking it away. You're not saying, ah, oh, they also knew that this was bad. You're not saying that. You're saying that, yes, they did this for this reason and they thought they were doing some really amazing things but we know now that's bad and that doesn't mean you know cancelling george washington that means understanding that george washington did things for a reason that you now see the repercussions of
0: and finally what do you think these debates around the curriculum say about british society at large
1: um, I think Britain, and this starts in, like, um, primary and secondary school, we need to start teaching ourselves the truth of our history um, and not just teach, like, 1066 and, like, the world wars and stuff because there were a lot of really ugly stuff in between. Um, and I think that without teaching that to... Um, students and university students there's no way for the country as a whole to come to terms with its own history and that affects everything from that affects how black people or um, any minority ethnic people are treated and looked at, that affects our laws, that affects so many things about um, the UK today um, and decolonizing the curriculum is such an important part of reaching equality overall
0: What about you Neha?
2: I think in the UK there's a lot of talk about leftist academics and leftist um, activists doing all these things and that shifts the discourse to a dichotomous binary, you know, this will, this will benefit the activists and none, nobody else, but decolonization benefits everybody um, and, when I, and, and I would go one step further from decolonizing from decolonize curriculum and I'd say decolonize the entire university look at the power structures in your university, um who's sitting on top, who's sitting second from top. You know, how is an institution structured? And then and that's when you compare it to their platitudes and that's when you compare it to their reparations. Um yeah, that's that's all that's what I'd say.
0: Almaz Neha, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Professor Jeremy Black, welcome to Telefriend. My first, my first question to you is that recently there's been a lot of fierce debate around the topic of decolonizing the curriculum, and you're someone who's had an extensive academic career, and I was wondering, is this a debate that's taken place earlier on in your career, or is this a recent emergence?
3: Well, Brian, that's a really interesting question. I think decolonization brings together two strands, one of which I'm afraid I don't sympathize with and one of which I do sympathize with. The one I do sympathize with very strongly is the idea that we need world history. I think that's really important. In fact, in my inaugural in Exeter in 1996, I talked about that, and I've always thought the you know the global dimension is very significant. Where I'm less happy about it is when I see what I regard as a presentism in political engagement. Now, I think that's a problem wherever people are on the political uh, on the political spectrum, and I think that in a sense we ought to try and understand the past in its own terms just as we would like to be understood in our own terms rather than somebody coming along in 200 years time and saying that for example because some of us ate meat therefore we were a disgusting civilization you know i I incidentally eat meat Um, but the point is All I'm trying to indicate is that their values would be, in their own terms, really important. And maybe those are important values now, but one's got to be very, very careful about how one looks across time in that fashion.
0: Now, I want to turn to an article that was recently published of yours uh, for The Critic. And in that article, you described staff-student roundtables and these teacher training schemes as being intimidatory, Orwellian, and Maoist. And my question to you is, what's wrong with roundtable discussions?
3: No, what I meant was the attempt to get members of staff to conform to, I think members of staff ought to be committed teachers, I think they ought to be engaged with the students, and I think they ought to put the students first. What I'm not so happy with, um, is the idea that one should have, as it were, um, one approved method of teaching uh, and that other methods of teaching should be regarded as as less, less acceptable. I mean, I'm a pluralist and I suppose also my politics come into play because I'm a libertarian. Uh, I think that one should permit things unless... Uh, they're against the law, or unless there's a very good reason to regard them as institutionally improper. So the idea of members of staff, or in fact students, I don't think members of staff are different to students in this respect, being forced to take a certain pedagogic uh, line is one I'm uncomfortable with, let's just put it like that.
0: Now in that same article you went on to say, and I quote, decolonization might sound good, but it is a program that is authoritarian in its methods and totalitarian in its objectives. And couldn't one argue that you've fallen into the trap of seeing the the decolonizing the curriculum camp as a homogenous block? Because you're obviously gonna get people who are gonna take it to the extremes, but you're also gonna get people who just want a more balanced analysis of history.
3: Well I don't think there was actually a lack of a balanced analysis of history and as I said I'm, I'm a world historian I you know um, I'm not sure that uh, and I've never been western centric particularly in what I've done most of my life working on which is military history I've always tried to give an enormous amount of weight way before it was fashionable to non-western military traditions um, so my concern is the, as I said, the ahistoricism of it, because it seems to me that decolonization on the whole means attacking the British Empire, when empire, whether British or non-Western, you know, there would been lots of non-Western empires, uh, empire was a fairly normal form of political um, um, organisational uh, structure until the mid-20th century, and you could always argue, if you wish to, I don't want to make a partisan political point, you could always argue that China is an empire at the moment. Certainly, if you were a Tibetan or a Zungar, you might experience it as that. So I did think that the, one of the problems was that people were, as it were, arriving at their conclusions before they had really thought in a wider or comparative context. Now, ISA happen still to think that. um, I'm well aware that the the bulk of the historical profession has a different view to me, which is absolutely fine. Um, But I do think it's important to argue the case for being very cautious about ipso facto regarding um, rule by others as whatever you might think of as a bad thing.
0: Now, in t- <clears throat> now in 2016, there was the roads must fall campaign, which found ground in the UK in Oxford, at Oxford University, and many of our academic institutions have developed due to the money that was acquired from you know the plunders of empires. And my I'm question. Not sure- I agree
3: with you quite on that so i mean i think if you don't mind uh, i'm quite happy to answer a question on roads must fall but you're clearly a very brilliant young man but slipping in a comment like that is designed to as it were prejudge for listeners where we're coming on that i mean my own view and again i've you know i'm a bit boring i have written extensively uh, my own view is that whilst slavery and the product of plantation economies were important to the prosperity of Britain in the 18th century and one would be a fool to deny it I have also argued that what made Britain unique after all Britain was not the only society uh, in Europe which was uh, in um, benefiting from slave-based plantations what I would argue is what made Britain unique and really gave it its prosperity is coal-based industrialization so I you know I mean you say something that's fine I admire what you're doing but I don't agree with your postulate let's let's talk about by all means let's talk about roads must fall i'm quite happy to talk about that um and i think it's an interesting interesting example of the way in which for good or ill and you could argue both points of view um um the the past is not something that is as it were past and i think that's very interesting the way in which um modern British uh, debates over uh, politics and over identity are often um, advanced with references to particular accounts of of the nation's history is I think really interesting. But you will not be surprised therefore that people might have differing views on on the resonance of things in the past. And you know, we've just had um, the, the memorialization of world war ii and um on the whole that's presented an account of britain on the home front as uh, determined resolute and united which has been used as a lodestar by which to consider the response to the covid pandemic in 2020. well that's fine but i mean as a historian Does one, should one point out that there were things like strikes during World War II? There were obviously some fascists. There were also many more, um, particularly in 1939 to 41, when the Soviet Union was allied with Hitler, many more on the far left who didn't regard it as their war. Now, I don't know whether you think it's right or not to say that, because to a certain extent, Um, history is both an academic pursuit of the past which is what I would like to think I am engaged in um, but it is also a way about how we tell stories about the past and all of us can do that all of us do do that and by the nature of those things that is contentious so for some people there is this story in which figures like Rhodes are you know villains in which British institutions rest on money gained from slavery and that is a terrible thing and for other people they just don't accept that that's the basic narrative of empire and you know it's not that um you should necessarily think oh my god each of these lots are wrong they've each got a point of view and looping back to what I said earlier as a libertarian pluralist uh, I have a point of view uh, but I'm I don't in any way object to people coming along with it with a different one
0: How would you say, then, that these institutions, such as Oxford, can acknowledge and also make peace with their history? Well, that's an interesting one. Now, that is an
3: interesting one. Um, And, you know, I don't know the answer to that, not least because, Brian, I think it is the case that each generation, each period of time might well find that the previous generation's acknowledging or making peace is... Um, inadequate, insufficient, inaccurate, uh, whatever that whatever you would mean in this context. So I honestly don't know. Um, I think that um, the, um, I mean I don't think anybody at the moment in Britain is hiding um, slave trade, slavery, um, and the uh, profits to the metropole, you know, the British Isles, that derived from that. I don't think that's being hidden. And I don't think there is any hiding of the process by which um, um, some specific institutions benefited quite a lot. Um, I'm not sure, though, that as to how far one expects further to go with this. Uh, um, And I think that is problematic. I mean, I have no particular brief for Cecil Rhodes for a second, Um, uh, but, you know, he was a man of his times and he had the racist views um, that were fairly common in those times. I mean, insofar as I can tell, because I've never studied Rhodes, he was actually less noxious than quite a few other people in that period. I'm just you know I mean people make racist remarks uh, you know and and they did that in the past I mean Gandhi for example made horrible remarks about Africans when he went to South Africa but I'm not sure that that means that you know we should get rid of statues of Gandhi I'm just a bit uneasy about this I am a bit uneasy so you know I'm not going to die in the ditch over it but I do think I do think um, it is, I do think the attitudes of the present day are being pushed too far in trying to, as it were, award points to people in the past. That's, that's what I would say.
0: Now, if we move away from the institutional level and look at the national level uh, of decolonization, what is your stance on repatriation of artifacts and also reparations?
3: Um, Well, there are two separate issues there. As far as the repatriation of artifacts is concerned, and remember, we're not just simply talking, as you'll be aware, about things to do with empire. Um, As far as the repatriation of artifacts are concerned, I suppose, in part, it depends upon the circumstances in which they were obtained um, and whether they were obtained um, through consent i mean in other words if i sell something uh because i'm a poor italian um Clergyman um, looking after, as it were, a monastery in 18, sorry, in 1920 or 1820 for that matter, to a visiting British aristocrat. Uh, the British visiting British aristocrat is clearly benefiting from the fact that Britain is wealthier and I might well be, as it were, representative in theory of a oppressed uh, society. But I don't think that's quite quite acceptable. So that's entirely different from the process by which, say, the Benin bronzes were uh, were acquired, where I think one can more appropriately see that as uh, looting and and predation, which is not, in my view, something we should be proud about. And if there is a legal body in a stable country to return it to then i think we should at least consider that and negotiate accordingly i mean i don't know enough about individual cases to comment on them but that i could see on the point about re- reparations i'm not really very happy about it because i think you know it goes on again as to whom is to dis- expect reparations from whom and um you know are for example i mean you're presumably worried about slavery um which is fair enough but uh, as you again will know that i've written several books about slavery and the slave trade i um, mean are, are the the descendants of those who sold the slaves in africa supposed to pay reparations to the wealthier? Uh, descendants of those currently living in North America because they were once slaves or their ancestors were once slaves I'm not sure that that makes sense and I indeed have written about that I mean more potently I don't like the idea of theoretical ancestral guilt I think hereditary guilt which after all was uh, uh, very horribly the basis of anti-semitism the idea being in fact it was the romans that killed christ but it was more convenient to blame the jews the idea that the jews killed christ and that therefore that did, that entitled people hundreds even thousands of years later to be uh cruel to them i actually think that's fairly disgusting so no i'm not happy with the notion of reparations my own view is that you should feel contrite for something that you do and that you should make reparation for it, if possible. That in other words, as individuals, including those people who live within a country, so as citizens, we should be, as it were, contrite for those who we mistreat. But I do not believe in hereditary guilt. And I think it is a um, morally bogus um, and intellectually suspect, and C, I think it is will be the basis for all sorts of disturbing processes. So no, I think actually, I am afraid, um, you know, you were urging me earlier to try and seek a middle path. I'm afraid there's no middle path for
0: me there. If we turn back to 2013, when Michael Goh proposed the change to the national curriculum, And we saw just how potent this issue is, not only for academics, but for the public at large. And you were part of a cohort of historians who wrote in support of Michael Gove. And there's been calls to introduce teaching of empire into primary and, well, okay, maybe not primary, but secondary schools. Do you support this?
3: Well, I'm not sure what you mean by a cohort of historians. I actually uh, was on the advisory board on that uh, drew up the new national curriculum. So, uh, and, and to that extent, one I was one of the people that advised Mr Gove. Um, my view on uh, history is that we should try and teach history at the local, the national and the international level, um, that we should try and have much more of a structure so that the idea that you just isolated episodes in order to study those in order to somehow build up knowledge of historical method but that you end up without any real idea of continuity I think that that is absurd. Um, I argued very strongly on the committee that we ought to have more Asian history uh, and was particularly arguing in favour of much more Chinese and Indian history and I found Mr Gove sympathetic and interested in those arguments. Um, As far as Empire was concerned, I honestly cannot remember off the top of my head uh, what we actually proposed on the matter because, you know, I haven't actually looked at the documentation since 2013. But I actually think it was a sensible revision my own view is it could have gone further uh, and indeed I think it, there was then a committee set up to evaluate whether to look at well to look at the AS levels and that didn't proceed I know the meeting, and, and there were meetings and I took part in those meetings but it didn't proceed to fruition um, you since obviously you want to find demons uh, let me also tell you that I can recall on the committee uh, there was attendance in at least one of the committee meetings if not maybe more I honestly can't remember of Mr Cummings who I can tell you was courteous and pleasant and was not as he is portrayed in the media so that again may not be what you want to hear um, but um, I actually think it was time to look again at the national curriculum it was looked at in the 1990s I think I'm right in saying or was it the 80s originally I can't remember you'll have to remind me because I'm tired I've been up working um, I think it was time in the 20 teens to look at it again Uh, But as you will gather, I am uh, somebody who wants, as it were, a loose rein, not a tight rein. I think there should be... um, uh uh, room for uh, for schools to in particular at local history level which i think is often not ta- taught well i think there ought to be much more room to do to, to look at that another point i made on the committee was that it was one had to be wary of making too many changes simply because of the cost of producing new material accordingly but i did think it was a good revision and in particular it met what I wanted, and why I think I was put on it, which was to argue much more for global history. And from what I remember, you may again be wrong. May be, you may have it in front of you. I mean, one of the things I argued for is that you know we were looking at also further subjects, and I argued that the the Mongol Empire and the Mongol engagement with China uh, would make a very good topic for thirteen and fourteen year olds to be taught about to give them an engagement with. A different culture, and an Asian culture. Um, so, you know, looping back to the British Empire, which is what you're obviously interested in. Um, my own view on world history is that it's currently not as I would like it. Um, certainly, over the last two millennium, uh, always um, uh, about sixty to sixty-six percent of the world's population have lived in East and South uh, Asia. And my own view is we teach far too little Chinese history, far too little Indian history, um, and we spend far too much of our time when we're looking at the outside world, um, engaging not with the cultures as separate cultures, but engaging with um, European imperialism. And I'm always very unimpressed by scholars of the British Empire who it transpires know virtually no non-British uh, foreign languages. I'm always very unimpressed by that, because to my mind, if you're a world historian and you don't know Chinese history, you're not up to it.
0: Now, you're a great believer in the fact that it is wrong to look at history with the values of today. But I put this to you, if we can agree that history can never truly be objective, then isn't it futile to expect academics to analyze the past without any consideration of hindsight or the developments that came afterwards? Well, you're
3: absolutely right, Brian, and that is a very good point. Um, I mean, what I would say is that it's an inexact subject, so you cannot reproduce the experiment. We can't go back in time. So to that extent, there is always going to be an element of subjectivity. I agree with you. Second of all, you're absolutely right. We always know what came later. Absolutely, and that necessarily affects our interpretation. You know, as it were, Marx by writing *Das Kapital* actually I undid his analysis because made it possible to go in a different direction. I mean, I wouldn't take that view myself, but you know, you could take that argument. And then, thirdly, and something that really gives me a lot of problems, we obviously use the vocabulary of the present day to discuss cultures. Which didn't have that vocabulary. So, for example, you know, let's say a book. You know, I've written a book, History of Geopolitics, where geopolitics as a word comes in the very end of the 19th century. Or I've written two books on the history of strategy. Strategy as a word um, in the modern sense. I'm not talking about in the Greek sense of the stratagem, but in the modern sense, again, in fact, comes from the 1760s. So you're absolutely right that for analytical analytical reasons epistemological reasons irrespective of politics we are as it were located in the present but at the same time i think teaching for everybody and you know students teach the the academics just as the academics try and teach the teachers sorry to teach the students um for everybody there's an aspiration there is an aspiration to try and understand why people did things, why developments occurred. So let me give you an example of that. There's no reason for you to have read my books, and quite frankly, you'd be a rather sad individual if you'd spent all your life doing them. But as I've made quite clear, it was very explicit in my biography of George III, and the reason there is because of the particular approach I took in the book. I'm an atheist, I've always been an atheist. I was apparently when I was six, I said God was a fairy story, but I've always sought to argue the significance to individuals and to societies of religious conviction and of religious ways of looking at the world. So, you know, I would like to feel that people can have their own values. I myself am appalled by racism. I myself am appalled by prejudice. It makes me sick to hear people, you know, physically uncomfortable to be in the company of people that make comments of that type. But I also do not think that it is helpful to just throw those beliefs onto people in the past when there were reasons for why they did things. And the fact that they had different values doesn't mean that they were individuals devoid of merit. And, you know, if you, for example, look at African societies, um, and it was rather interesting, I was asked once to speak for Black Awareness month, I think it was, at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich on the slave trade, because I'd just brought out a book there. And there was a largely black audience. And, you know, we discussed it. And at the end, uh, you know, they came up with exactly as you asked about the questions about apology and reparations. And I said, well, the difficulty is, I said, is that the people encompassed in this were widespread. You know, the notion of, as it were, a benign Africa, a villainous West, is just an absurdity, as you will know if you've studied African history in the past. But I also said, and and I, I think that this is what you know what I I came across most strongly on. I said to them, look, if you are angry about this, it's actually being very lazy and self-abusing to beat up on people in the 200 years ago. I said within five miles of here, that, that was Greenwich, there will be slaves. They might be black, they might be brown, they might be yellow, they might be white, it does not matter. There will be slaves. And if you think that is wrong, as I do, then you would be better off writing to your MPs and trying to go and see them in their surgeries to press them on the matter than beating up on the past. And it's interesting to note that the British politician who's done most in the uh, to try and deal with modern slavery in Britain is a highly unpopular politician, but was none other than Theresa May, the last Prime Minister, who made it one of her great... Um, drives to try and do something about slavery and she did more for it and more about it than all of those far left-wing academics who want we on about the 18th century but who actually cannot be bothered to deal with the difficulties in the society they live in.
0: Do you believe that the discipline of history is lacking the voice of academics from the global South? Sorry, do I believe that the voice of- Do you believe that history should include more voices uh, from academics from the global south, so from Africa, from Asia?
3: Well, I don't think it's not. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't think that um, there is any um, opposition to, in fact, you know, in my field, uh, my prime field, which is military history, you know it would be really useful i mean for example a society i would really love to know more about because it has a long-term history and was a significant military power is ethiopia um so no i don't think anybody is disinclined to um uh to uh, to look at uh, non western history i think there is a problem which you've identified and which i've tried to identify by being horrible about people who don't look at China and that I that problem is that of language that it isn't, it is the case that people who are British specialists tend to look at the anglophone world and the same with uh, obviously French counterparts Hispanicists and so on and I think that's actually a problem I do think that that is a problem Um, So I think, for example, I mean, one of the good things, very good things about the Exeter Department is Martin Thomas is an expert on, you know, on Algeria, you know, and an expert on the French colonial engagement with warfare, which is, you know, which is excellent. Um, uh, But I do think that all too many of those people in Britain, whatever their background, uh, all too many of them work simply on the British Empire. And, I, and he, well, it's even worse than that. Let's be clear about this. They work on the British Empire mostly in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and they don't really know much about it earlier than that. Um, and I think that is a practical problem. But, you know, as it were, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I'm possibly in being a perfectionist here, which, which isn't very helpful.
0: Now, finally, how do we find the middle ground in all of this? Well, the middle ground, and I, again, can I congratulate you, Brian? You're doing
3: very well, and standing up to somebody like me is not easy. You um, would have been a pleasure to teach. Um, first of all, I do think that world history is a really important tool. And if I was trying to advocate what is generally called decolonization, what i would do is i would try and present it as world history i would try and detach from it what I think are egregious i.e unnecessary political accretions because if you look at world history if you go back world history was developed in the west we're not talking about non-western traditions here but it was developed in the west in the 18th century essentially by enlightenment historians Voltaire being a classic example who wanted to find a way of moving outside the Christian narrative and the Christian framework and in a way, Edward Gibbons decline of all the Roman Empire is part and parcel of that. Now, um, I actually think that world history has a distinguished uh, uh, background. There is the, uh, There are journals, Journal of World History is an excellent one, uh, based in Hawaii, incidentally, which is very much a place of ethnic intermingling. Um, they are there are world historians in a number of cultures I don't think the British have done it terribly well I'll be clear about that I think I think partly what you're talking about it seems to me and I think you're right to raise the topic and I'd be happy to carry it on in another discussion but I think partly what you're talking about are the deficiencies of, of the British tradition so that, for example, when the British got onto to world history at the academic level, it became just the history of bits of the empire. And then it was turned round to become a history of criticism of the empire. But this was very narrow. Um, and, you know, if you want, uh, I mean, I, I found this I mean, years ago. I was putting together a series on world military history uh, for... Um, UCL Press, then Routledge, it still runs, and I think I had to fill 36 topics, and I wanted, you know, a book on medieval Japanese warfare, on early Chinese warfare, early modern Chinese warfare, late modern Chinese warfare, African uh, warfare, um, Atlantic African warfare, um, and you know, repeatedly I was having to go to Americans or to people out elsewhere in the world, but not finding people in Britain because they just were too narrow. So I think that what I would do was press the button much more for world history. And a last point, since you're a student here, and it's always interesting to know the background of your department. In the 2000s, I had the established chair, I was the senior historian, Uh, but I was not head of department, which was probably just as well for all concerned. And um, I remember fussing that we weren't doing enough world history. And I was constantly saying we needed to change the syllabus. So for example, when I did my course on European history, 1600 to 1815, I deliberately included a question on slavery, a lecture on slavery, question on slavery, I deliberately put it in Europe in the world. But anyway, I said we should have more world history. And the head of department, a charming, very bright, highly successful historian. She's now the professor of modern history at Cambridge and a fellow of the British Academy, so much more distinguished than me. But she was totally against it. She was a historian of early modern Britain. She didn't really want world history. And I remember, The row, it wasn't acrimonious, but it was, neither of us were going to give way. And we both, it went up in the end to the Dean. And I remember Tim Dunn. And I remember him saying, um, you know, well, what's going on? And I said, it is absurd that you can come out of a... Exeter history degree and know nothing about the history of China have never heard of Thomas Jefferson that was before we appointed two uh, uh, sinologists we now do have two historians of China so that's excellent but at the time I was talking about there were none at all and I said this was appalling and Alex more or less said well you're wrong and I'm the head of department so there you go um and obviously the dean did exactly the right thing as he should have done and as I would have done as dean he backed his you know his his head which is what you have to do under those circumstances but let me assure you I think that the, the, this is a much bigger question which is how do we engage with world history and I think decolonization quite frankly is sort of froth on the carpets, like a sort of some of it I'm afraid is rather rancid and I'm not very impressed by it because for most of the history of the world people haven't been ruled by in a process of democracy by people of their own backgrounds now you all I may find that uh, wrong you might think you know that's ridiculous as a guide but it's true of the past and it doesn't really help saying of the past oh my god wasn't this awful Um, because actually that doesn't take us very far that then just becomes about us not about the past and one of the things desperately I don't want to see happen and this is true for both academics and students is for a serious subject which history is to become a self-abusing account of us of the teachers of the students of our values of how we feel because I'm not interested in how people feel what I want to know is how
0: people think and whether they can think Professor Jeremy Black, thank you for joining me on Telefriend.